The moon was well overhead, and a great fire had burned low. A loud clap of thunder woke me from my dream. All dreams are not true dreams, my mother said. But in my dream that night, the three great winged birds with voices like thunder rode wild waves into our bay. They were not like any birds we had ever seen. Their sharp, white teeth filled their mouths. This is Journeys in Podcasting, threading the learning community within and beyond. A podcast for teachers, by teachers. You are just listening to and watching an interactive read-aloud. With the app Explain Everything, reading becomes an interactive participatory event. We can record our thoughts as we read, our interactions with others. Reading becomes a multimodal, full-sensory, co-created experience. Gutenberg's binding of text, once responsible for breaking the monopoly of a literate elite on education and learning, is now being unbound by the literate masses, not content with being passive consumers of text. This secondary orality is about engaging with text, remixing, co-creating mashups, sharing text across time and space synchronously and asynchronously, making thinking not just readable, but visible, infusing text into transmedia events. Is this a return to a pre-industrialized polychronic communicative form, or a new era of literacy? A post-Gutenberg parenthesis. This is the Transmedia Edition, a collection of recordings gathered since South by Southwest in Austin this year. We'll start there with Tracy Clark, whose sketch notes caught my attention at an EdCamp ATX session. Then we'll hear from Asa's Silvia Tolisano of the Languages blog, who I caught up with at Alan November's BLC conference in Boston this summer. And because this is the first podcast to produce solo, I'll try to keep the monologues to a minimum for fear of sounding like this YouTube cast I saw today. When I was thinking about a lot of things, and some of the things that I was thinking about is... The Gutenberg parentheses and sketchnoting and how our modern media literacies are bringing us into new forms of expression. And now, let's hear from Tracy Clark at South by Southwest. Okay, so I'm here with Tracy Clark and she's going to talk a little bit about sketchnoting. And you could just talk like how you came about it and how it works. Yeah, I think I actually first saw it um, with Austin Cleon when I was reading one of his books, and then I got to meet him last year at uh, South by Southwest. And so he, uh, just kind of from seeing his sketchnoting in his books, um, I started playing around with it, and then um, I read Mike Rhodes' uh, sketchnoting workbook, and he kind of pulled me a little bit further into it, and I started to really just see the way it helped me make my thinking visible when I would be reading books or going to sessions, and um, kind of brought back out a little bit of the art, my artistic side, and, um, but... So, 
I, I have seen this guy, Brad Ovenel Carter, before, and he'll just be sketching, like, literally while he's giving a talk and a session. And I find it really effective, not just for the, the visual part, but how do you feel like it affects the students' ability to express themselves, especially your marginalized students who may be second language learners, may be introverts, or may just not be linguistically that adept? Yeah, we had a conversation here at EdCamp a second ago where we were talking about how um, the sketch learning really seems to make it make the ideas more accessible for the students because they can come just from wherever they are. They don't necessarily have to have the language to be able to express it, but sometimes maybe they visualize something in their mind that they could draw out. Um, and so I, I think it really could help students from a lot of different levels be able to access and process and think, not just think about content, but think kind of with those ideas in mind as they are building and creating um, their thoughts. We were talking earlier about making thinking visible, and I think I even heard you say it's, uh, what is the sort of looking and uh, thinking and uh, wondering, or what, what was the... Oh, uh, was see, think, wonder. See, think, wonder. Yeah, that's, that's one of the um, visible thinking routines from Harvard's Project Zero, and there's a book called Making Thinking Visible that Ron Richard wrote, and so um, I work a lot with, you know, encouraging teachers to nurture a culture of thinking, which is another term that he coined, um, but I, I just started to see the connections, I think, between that work and the sketchnoting, where originally I thought of them as kind of separate things, I really started to see how it was just another way um, to make students thinking literally visible and see how they're making connections. And I've noticed I can design thinking framework, like, you know, they seem to be obsessive about keeping the hands moving, keeping the, you know, as they're talking, they're sketching on to post-its and then posting them up and then making everything a public process, but also a visibly thinking process. Um, Is this kind of how you use it in class as well? Yeah, I think um, part of that is the multimodal learning and, you know, being able to, um, you know, have the kinesthetic value, have, you know, the visual value and just... um, making that all a community process I think helps, uh, for example a student's thoughts could be extended by a peers because they see oh, you know, I hadn't thought of that before Mm. or they could be kind of reassured by saying um, you know, this person's thinking in a similar way to me, I'm not, you know, out in la la land so there's a lot of value I think in having that community feel and and making it visible (laughs) Yeah, I read a book called The Hand last year and one of the things was saying like the hand actually developed before our brain did and saying that the hand pushes our thinking, that in, in our muscle memory and in our syntax of movement, there's actually connections to our thought process as well. Do you find a connection there? Or is that too far out? This would be a great... So there's something about like syntax of movement and, and syntax of thought that um, okay. as like there's muscle memory so as your as your hand is moving and as your hand it, it can actually be yeah. according to this book um, it can actually be pushing your thought process as well causing a bridge so if you get into a point where I don't have that linguistic capability but my hand does and right. I can sort of like bridge this muscle memory of the yes. hand to okay gotcha, gotcha. I'm with you. Uh-huh. so um, I think I think it was Brad Ovenall that talked about um, or was it Mike Rody? I'm not sure uh, one of them talked about this idea of um, you know you you start to get a visual library of your sketch notes to where your hand already remembers how to draw that thing. And so that's why they're able to do it so fast, right? So if they, like, you always draw your little people the same way, then your hand doesn't really have to think about it. Like, you don't really have to think as much about it anymore, and so you start to just go. It's like a, a visual grammar almost. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's where I've seen that. Thank you very much. 
So um, I was uh, teaching at the American School of Sao Paulo and working with seventh graders. And the, um, we, were, we were asking them to, to do a passion project. And the only requirement was that they could not do, um, the project could not be about something that they already knew something about. It had to be that they, uh, something that they were not good at yet. So um, as they were looking and trying to, um, to figure out their project, I decided that I should just jump in with them. And, um, and sketchnoting was something I had seen, I was very interested in, but um, as a third grader I was told that I couldn't draw. So um, I had never felt that I was good enough to try something like this. So that's how it came about, about a year ago. I started um, learning more about sketch notes. So, as an alternate form, let's just start with like note taking. Why why is this so approachable as opposed to like you know let's talk about elementary school kids. You were, you said at third grade you were taught that you couldn't draw, and then that's about the time that kids kind of stop and close, and the creative side of their drawings become less creative. Um, how does this tap into a different kind of thinking expression? that they wouldn't get from taking notes? I think that it's a different process. Somehow our brains, they, they process visuals at a completely different rate as um, a simple text alone or when we hear something. So the ability to, um, to, to actually see a visual and analyze it and, um, and make connections with it, and then at the same time also, what does the process of drawing uh, a visual. What does it do to your brain? How do you think differently? Um, I think it's um, it's a big shame, especially in the visual world that we live in. Everything is more visual than textual at this point. Yeah, we've played around with it, having one group taking notes with text, having another group um, just sketchnoting as they go, and then try to observe how retention worked afterwards. And, huh? and definitely the sketchnoters had a lot more to say about the topic. Yeah. I did the same kind of experiment, yeah. and um, it was a fifth grade class that they were learning about the American Revolution, and they um, they were um, we divided them into groups: the traditional note takers, mm-hmm. um, which they had a clipboard and they they were supposed to take notes the way they were taught with bullet <laughs> bullet mm-hmm. points. We had um, back channelers, um, a group of uh, three to four kids who were um, uh, on a today's meet, mm-hmm. uh, which were, uh, they were collaboratively taking notes. And then we had doodlers, sketch noters, who were to draw what they saw on that video. And then we, um, we also, we tried another um, version is we, um, and the students are the ones who came up with that, that name, um, a screen shooter. Mm-hmm. So they were at the smart board. The video was projected um, onto the smart board and they were allowed to pause the video at any time and take a screenshot of of what was showing right right there and um, so we had those four different um, groups and they watched the movie and um, and then they were given some time to clean it up a little bit and then each group was asked to come to the front to bring their notes with them um, the clipboarders they stood there and within 90 seconds read their bullet points of about the American Revolution, what they remembered, what they had written down. The back channelers um, took a little longer. They cleaned up their back channel. They printed it out and brought it to the front. They talked a little bit longer because they had more things because four people contributed to those mm-hmm. notes. And then the sketch noters 
were able to talk for over 10 minutes freely about what they heard, the movie, the wow. timeline, and so on. The screen shooter was able to do the same. Um, they took the screenshots um, from the movie throughout, um, put them in a timeline, and then was able, from um, using the smart board with that timeline, um, to to be able to tell um, what they remembered about the movie. Yeah, I had normally used image um, as a way of provoking thought, and then started experimenting with this and realizing how much thought is actually captured in a sketch or, or in a graphic. And it made me think about these very basic human characteristics of, you know, we're storytelling animals, we always told stories, but way before we were text-telling stories, written down yes. text-telling stories, we were oral-telling stories, and we were recording stories with, with graphics. In caves. Back to the, the old churches, which are kind of like the... Um, the beginnings of graphic novels when you look at you know a vase painting of the Greeks and you look at the old churches of Europe you know there's there's graphic novels going on right there that as you were saying people could probably speak extensively from the graphics right on vases yeah. um, just the, the the Greeks the what, what they the stories they were telling on on ceramics yeah so um, let's take this from one other place because you, you already kind of mentioned it that making your thinking visible and um, how that is becoming more and more of a trend, I think, in school cultures as content changes quickly or content is more constructed or patched together and um, even, you know, disciplines are mixing. But the thinking moves, and I'm thinking more of like the book out of Project Zero, Making Thinking Visible, that the thinking moves are what we're trying to carry as a consistent part of a school culture from place to place, from subject to subject. How does this address uh, the thinking moves? I think it's perfectly um, integra integrated in it. Um, we've used visible thinking routines as part of prompts for sketch notes mm -hmm. to, to help students organize their thoughts. And um, it's, it's a matter of, of really, I mean, there's so many different ways. You can hear a lecture, you can watch a video, you can, um, you can um, summarize, extract um, the essence of a conversation. Uh, a brainstorming session, um, or whatever. There's so many different ways that you can. Um, we we have input of information. How do you process that, and how then do you make that visible to others? So the visible thinking routines are a great way of um, of helping students to organize it. To start, where do I start? Mm. So um, so there's there there's you know I see I think I wonder. Mm -hmm. um, that is a process too. It's in itself the documentation of your learning process of your learning journey. Um, I used to think, and then you can make that visible. What did you used to think, or what are you thinking right now? And then I'll take I pick this um, sketch note up again in a few weeks, mm -hmm. and and then how has my thinking changed, mm -hmm. and how are you going to express that? What made my thinking change? Um, that's the interesting part because that's how we are learning. We're really for the first time asking our students to tell us how, how, how do you learn? How do you learn best? And mm -hmm. what can we do to support it and make that visible to us? That will help us then inform what are we going to teach next and how are we going to teach it? So I have followed you and met you uh, a couple of times now. And I, you know, one, one of the things about Twitter is that you know these people sometimes years before you actually run into them and meet them. Where can people find you? Where can they sample some of these sketch notes? Um, um, online, my, uh, my identity is uh, Lang Witches. 
um, that is the, the witch of the language. And um, so on Twitter, I'm languages, and my blog is languages.org forward slash blog. So um, from there, anytime, just you know, search for languages and you'll find, you'll find my work and okay. um, my visuals, my cool. sketch notes. Well, then Here we go. Week. One, two, three, go. Uh-huh. My poem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. 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 One, two, three, go. The walking stick is staying on thick and has a disappearing trick. By looking like a tweaker stuck, it is another day to walk. Walk. Yes. Those were fourth graders using a Douglas Florian poem to immerse in their insect studies. By using GarageBand loops, multiple voice tracks, green screen, and Premiere Pro, we walk the students through audio and media production. This is part of immersing students in a transmedia environment, providing multimodal, low-threshold mediums for students to explore content. Now we'll travel to an empty ballroom at ISTE, where Lee Ann Tisseling talks about new literary forms. I, I think the, Chris talked to me about trying to think about using interactive fiction and machinima creation as uh, writing genre or activities that teachers can do with students that provide students with greater agency uh, and give them an authentic audience and allow for collaborate, it, well, require collaborations <laughs> and uh, have some power to help students engage more completely in the writing process and with topics that they're interested in. So let me just describe the two things a little bit and then John can, I'm sorry, Chris, Chris (laughs) can, Chris can, oh, it's long, late at night. No worries. Uh, Chris can ask me some questions if he has uh, some about that. Interactive fiction has been around for a while. It was one of the first kinds of computer games. Uh, It kind of got pushed to the side for a while, and now it's making a pretty big comeback. Uh, They're both commercial and free versions of interactive fiction, and there are platforms designed for children, for K-12 students, to write interactive fiction stories. Um, The idea Ultimately, people that write interactive fiction are hoping that the author of the, the story or the novel and the reader will actually co-create the narrative uh, as artificial intelligence programs become more sophisticated. Right now, it's similar to choose-your-own-adventure stories, but better. And they're also now, they're both what are called parser-based, where students have to enter in text or they're the point-and-click kind of choose-your-own-adventure. There are also platforms to allow students to write their own interactive fiction or to write collaboratively with interactive, write stories in interactive fiction for classmates, for others, and there are, like fan fiction, there are websites that archive these and allow for reviews of them, and some of those websites do uh, rate or group them so that it's clear the age group that they're designed for. My second interest is machinima, and machinima is a mash-up of the idea of um, machines and cinema. And essentially, uh, the authors, the creators of Machinima, take video uh, 
either from gameplay or their Minecraft creations or existing digital video that's on the internet that we hope have appropriate copyright permissions and create new stories that go with them. And so examples of machinima, if you've watched uh, sci-fi theater uh, where they took Japanese movies and then recreated them with a new dialogue, that's an example of machinima. All of the YouTube videos where kids show how to do things in a video game or how to create things in Minecraft or walk you through your, their Minecraft creation are machinima. Uh, there, you can do machinima in Second Life or any other alternative reality game. Uh, and within that genre, then, what I'm looking at are ways that language arts, English language arts teachers or any language arts teacher can use that to help create writing activities, writing assignments that support the development of high-quality machinima. And within that, you'd want to do some planning, some storyboarding, some script writing, uh, some editing, some I, things with word choice. And typically, mo many of the machinima creations are done by small groups of kids together, adults together. There, there are a few machinima artists that create their own uh, on their own, but it's a great group activity. What would you call all this other hybrid creation? I don't know, is it transmedia when um, a student or, or an adult writes something, but then they also produce a multimedia piece for it? You see a lot of the pop stars doing this now where they'll be tweeting, blogging, and they'll kind of create this narrative across different media formats. Um, or is it just multimedia storytelling or digital storytelling? Well, uh, I'm trying to think of the definitely seems, Patrick, seems to... Car Patrick Carmen has uh, some books. He started with Skeleton Creek, and then he did um, The Trackers, where you read the book and then there are links to videos that the kids go out and watch. You know, I, I, he calls them video books. I don't think that there's been any consensus re reached on what uh, these what are. Uh, but I've yeah. seen it pop up a, a couple of different places. I think a couple of years ago there was one from the World Wildlife Fund where they created a digital book for the iPads. And there, there's a, a, you know, the content, the reading content is good, but then there's also these gaming aspects to it where the kids have to play a quick game. Um, mm -hmm. So they're kind of like going back and forth across these media formats. Publishers that come to me with that kind of product are calling them e-books or interactive e-books. Hmm. I don't think we've settled into names for these yet, and I, I, I think for, if you really think in terms of new literacies, it almost is counterproductive to try to pin down a name and a definition because it's going to change mm. almost immediately as soon as there's a new technology out. How do you see, you know? the future of writing as far as the individual writing experience or some of these new collaborative writing experiences where you can be writing with someone else on a Google document, for example, or uh, I think of some things we've done in class where we'll take someone's writing or segments of different people's writing, stitch them together, and as a class create a new narrative of those 
kind of things. And I want to say these things are happening more because the tools are helping facilitate them. So I think what you're describing would be fan fiction, mm -hmm. where you're using characters or settings of television shows, movies, books that you like, manga, anime, um, and some of those, they, they go across titles, so they'll take Captain Kirk and I can't remember the name of the guy that's in Firefly, and, and put them together on a ship together. And I, like Star Trek is this very optimistic, clean, nice kind of vision of what uh, interspace travel is going to be like versus Firefly, which is like grunge punk stuff. It's, you know, it's, so how would they go together if they were in the spaceship together having to pilot it? Um, okay, so your question about... What do you call that, by the way? That's, well, that's fan fiction, and I, they're just different subcategories within fan fiction. You're not, I'm not going to be able to come up with what they call that particular uh. one. But those are really fun. Uh, the people are quite creative when they, or they take the characters and put them in the setting of a different novel. You know, so you, you take Jane Eyre and put her in Shopaholic <laughs> and how she would react in that. Huh. It, it, it's great. Now, what I see happening with writing programs in schools and, and writing with kids is that People worry a lot about the, the challenges to authors to being published. You know, they look at the news media where newspapers are folding and laying off authors, magazines are, you know, closing. But on the other hand, there are all these other alternative sources. Now, the problem is that people that write blogs don't get a lot of money for them. It's hard to make a living as a blog writer. If you're really interested in this, I love the series um, by uh, Myra Grant. Starts out with the book Feed. And it's a post-apocalyptic view of uh, the United States after a zombie outbreak where the whole country loses faith in the commercial news media and bloggers become the primary source of news. And the main characters are teenagers that are running around and reporting on politics and blog, and they get selected to the, be the blog team on the presidential campaign for 2015 mm. or something like that. Wow. <laughs> no, that, that just makes me, you know, that, that, I guess it's a kind of a debate that's come back and forth. Has this made us worse readers or, or better readers? Uh, from a personal standpoint, I can just say that, like, I feel like it makes me a little bit more acute in my sensory when I start to read something. I get hypercritical, is, is this something worth reading, you're listening for, is this a valid source of anything? Um, or because the blur between quality writing, going from blogs and going from news sources, you know, goes back and forth. A lot of the mm -hmm. education stuff that's published is pretty baloney, but if you look at some of the top bloggers here at ISTE, you're going to find some pretty quality work on their blogs. So, so is there a future for kids as writers? I think definitely. I think there are really interesting things going on with self-publishing. Some people have made some real progress with going through the Amazon publishing, the Kindle book, you know, sell your own book on Kindle. 
Um, but, you know, writers have never made a lot of money, most of them. There's a lot of reading going on. Yeah, let me ask you one more. I don't want to keep, it's already like 10 o'clock, and I know it's been a long day, but um, the, the main thing is, like, I'm curious about, like, as you see more of this tool use of the electronic stuff coming in, giving us these capabilities to write more collaboratively or stitch things together across different media formats or even different sources, putting characters together, writing off of fiction. Is this ease of tool use changing the way we write? And will that become a more acceptable kind of creative form? Or do you think we'll cling to this idea of writing as a creation that came out of Europe that, you know, is still a very independent creation? All you have to do is read the foreword to almost any book that's published, and they start thanking all the people that have helped them write the book. Hmm. You know, famous authors are thanking their uh, book club friends, their writers' club friends. They're thanking their researchers. They're thanking medical authorities to, that have reviewed their materials for accuracy. They thank police for what they're doing. It, writing is a collaborative enterprise, and the single person who writes by themselves is rare these days. And it, it, it's true in academia. You know, I rarely write articles by myself anymore, and most of the publication that I'm doing now, um, I do with teams of researchers across the country. We put up a Google Doc, we write it together, we have very long, very long Google Hangout or Skype conversations about our writing. We read it aloud together in edit simultaneously within the Google Doc. Hmm. I, I just don't think, and if you're a newspaper or magazine writer, for the most part you get a lot of collaboration. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that writing is not a solitary activity. And I think you write better. You know, as far as kids writing in school, I think that you write better when you know that your co-author is going to be reviewing your work because you care about what your peer thinks. You don't care so much what the teacher thinks other than getting a grade. <laughs> mm. But as far as your personal investment, when it's going in front of other students your age, that, that's a real audience. The traffic in Bogota is an entity of its own. It's what drove me to listening to podcasts and the alternative reality game Ingress. Bumper-to-bumper standstills just mean more resistance portals get blown up, more enlightened resonators deployed. You simply have to appropriate traffic, the way Argentine hippies have, juggling at intersections. So when you are on a field trip with a class of third graders, the bus inching along through traffic, what better time to get some Socratic dialogue going? An extension of a classroom activity debating pros and cons similarities and differences of text and other symbolic forms. Um, I think um, emojis or called symbols, um, they, they, can, they can make you express like angry, um, heritable, um, praying. And, so I have a question yeah. for you. If you had to use an emoji or use words, what would be the advantages or disadvantages of using an emoji? I would like to say an advantage of the um, of the letter of the letters because 
the learners they 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 can be more specific and they can talk better and they can explain it better. And but the emojis they like one uh, like that they they clap or they pray or they or they high five. So no one knows. Symbols can mean very different, um, a variety of things like uh, like a peace symbol can mean like people getting together and and then forming the world and that symbols um, are emoticons and emojis and that um, Symbols could also be letters and words. So if you write like, um, if you write like, hi, and the H and an I are symbols, and yeah. Go ahead. Symbols are things that stand for things. For example, <laughs> an acronym stands for a name of a company sometimes. Emojis can mean many different things. They can mean sad, happy, angry, many things. The advantage of having a mo an emoji is that they don't take up too much space. But the disadvantage is maybe you don't know what it means, so you have no words to explain it. I mean that if you have, if you don't know what it means, and you don't know, and there aren't any words to explain it, you'll have to end up emailing someone and asking them or something like that. That's why it's a little bit better to have an emoji labeled. Um, an emoji, uh, um, symbols are, are, uh, uh, are things to explain a word, but in 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 a smaller place. And symbols like emojis can 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 be emotions or 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 like many other things. Like the peace sign can mean many things, and and it and you might not understand it, so you can just put um and figure it out by looking at it close and 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 seeing what what it might be so i'm here with felipe and we're on our way to the gold museum to to, go, to look for symbols and i'm going to ask him um, what do you think is better words or symbols i think symbols because it's like if you if you speak Chinese, no matter what, you're still gonna understand symbols. And like, if you have you, there's words, and you have floppy handwriting, no one can understand it. And if when you give us give it a symbol, um, it 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 like you understand better the word. Can you give me an example? Like how I write. Anybody understand my handwriting? Sometimes they understand my handwriting, but I have very floppy handwriting, and 
when my when my dad see sees the like the picture I I, I, I draw, he understands more what what I'm what I'm what I'm, what I'm putting. And can you give me an example of, of a symbol of like why that would be better than words? Say I wrote a paragraph a paragraph that was I uh, they're, they're gonna buy a dog to me. I'm so excited. Oh yeah, I'm so excited and I, I have um, I have floppy handwriting and then I put a, a picture or a symbol and it's it's better. So I'm here with um, Daniel and Pablo, and they're having a, a fight, an argument, a critical discussion, and they're talking about words and symbols, about which one is better. So let's let's hear what they have to say about words and symbols. Symbols are better because they take less space, and you could show a lot of emotions and a little symbol that can be the size of a nail or the size of a hair or the size of a feather. If you have words, you they take a lot of more space, and you couldn't have a lot of games or things in your iPhone, iPads, or walls, maybe all those things. Um, no. Well, uh, words are better because you have to ex they explain more the symbols like what. The sign of Bluetooth, you do not know that how you will be explained by words. Word, words help you to understand better than symbols because they they tell you the things and symbols show you the things. Can you give me an example? Yes, like for example, uh, I was in one time, it was my first iPad and I didn't know how to use it. And I, I didn't know what, what the Wi-Fi sign, you know, and, and, for, and with words, I wouldn't understand more easily. I, but when I got my first iPad, I thought, okay, I don't know this, but I know when the, the line is moving up, it, it says I have more Wi-Fi, and... Like, yeah, and you can see if you have Wi-Fi or you don't. Well, uh, and two, you, you, if you should, if you don't know the word, the symbols, what do you do? You should, you read, and what, why do you, with what do you read? Words. But what if, do you do if you don't know how to read? And you know how to, what are the numbers? You could read the hour, but you can read words saying it's 10 o'clock or something like that. And I too, but if you didn't know what was that signal, what, how do you would know what's that? Symbolism or words? And also I think that words should be used because if they look at a symbol and they don't know what it means, then they should know it in like 
a word because then they it can be probably translated into like other languages. So yeah. Uh, I think symbols because um, when you read words, um, if you want to translate it, maybe it can take a long time. Instead of symbol, it's a quick drawing and doesn't take much space and maybe everyone could understand it because it's a symbol. Uh, I, I think that you are very right about that but like if you like have like something let's say like you have something like a phone and you just look at it and you're like what's this for and then you just they can maybe can have it in words so you know what it means and like so you know like oh it's saying wi-fi i know what that means because you can get it that way and and um like if you were looking and you were like wanting wanting to like um like you were at like a museum and you were looking at other stuff like and then you were like oh what does this symbol mean you just would if it was it would show it in words like or something then it would be easier to know I agree with you, but I still think symbols are shorter, a shorter way to explain things because when it shows something, it's easier to read it instead of reading and translating and reading and translating and reading and translating. Because maybe you, when you, when you are looking for the battery, you you may, in words it can say like, you have low battery, this means you have no say, keep percent But instead uh, uh, of taking that much space, a symbol can say with the battery bar, if it has a, what percent does your cell phone have? And um, the Wi-Fi instead of you never you would never know if the Wi-Fi is not working if you're playing games or not doing something that you need the Wi-Fi and when you are and when you look for the Wi-Fi because it, it's not a it, it's too big to fit on the on uh, on on the top of the cell phone, so they have to put it in another part, and you may not see it. So you need to use the symbol because it's linear, and you can see it, and you can put it on the top of the cell phone. Was anything else? Okay, cool. Well, listen, and I'm wondering, are you gonna argue for symbols or words? Symbols. Okay, I'm gonna argue for words. Then, you ready? Yeah. I think symbols are better because it's a faster way to represent to represent a word. That's like maybe maybe it could be like e instead of writing a word with letters, you, sh you could put like a symbol. And symbols are faster ways to represent. Why are they faster? Because it's like 
A word has a lot of letters. Instead, symbols is just like, let's say, a tree. To write tree, you need le you need four letters, and maybe it can take it takes time. And instead, you can with symbols, you can just draw a tree. Gotcha. However, if you make a symbol for a tree, with words you could talk about like what kind of tree it is. And then you could talk about if it's an old tree or a young tree or a tree that has like fruit on it. Whereas if you make a symbol for a tree, you might get confused about what kind of tree it is. Because you can like put a lot of details. So like if it if it's old you can put like some lines in it. And if it has fruit you can put like the shapes of the of the fruit and color it. And if it's in your phone, like you can find the kind of tree you want. So we're talking about effectively the, the prehistory from, from that perspective, the prehistory of, of the media uh, in the form of printing and writing and, uh, and, and the human voice as the means of communication. This idea about the parenthesis, it suggests that knowledge of what happened uh, in, in that relatively distant past uh, can be more than usually helpful uh, in understanding what's happening in the present and what may happen in the future and vice versa. Talking about the end of the book uh, invites us, of course, to uh, juxtapose that with the beginning of the book, with the emergence of printing and, and, the, and the printed book. And another one of the uh, influential works on this field, in this field is Peter Schillingberg's study from 2006, uh, which is entitled From Gutenberg to Google, where his thesis is, we are in the infancy, we are now in the infancy of a textual revolution comparable to the one initiated by the invention of printing from movable type in the 15th century. Two revolutions, Gutenberg revolution, Google revolution, uh, three phases, the two, the two revolutions taking us from one level of technology to another in, in, the, in mediating context, uh, from a low technology of personal face-to-face -face oral mediation with some writing, uh, a step upwards in technology with Gutenberg into an intermediate technology with textual mediation by the printed book, and then the Google revolution to a higher technology with the electronic media, digital technology, the internet. And, and of course, Marshall McLuhan, uh, uh, famously uh, has referred to the Gutenberg galaxy uh, as the uh, name for the, for, the, for the phrase in between uh, and that those two revolutions can be compared in their impact on the nature of, 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 of human thinking and many other things. There are others have done the same. Walter Ong also famously has developed this notion of secondary, oral, secondary, uh, secondary orality uh, that we are moving we are moving into something that resembles even more the past. Uh, we are going through a period uh, of print, moving into a secondary orality, which takes us in many ways back uh, to the primary orality of the pre-print period. And that's moving us on to something else, uh, because this is the notion that not, we are not merely moving up in technology on into a third phase, uh, but that third phase of uh, media history is taking us back uh, in many ways to the 
the period between. That, uh, in, in, uh, in modern electronic editions, uh, texts are becoming more fluid, less stable, more subject to intervention uh, by people who copy them, and that therefore uh, they are, that, that situation is taking us back to how things were uh, in the age of manuscripts, in the age, uh, in the age of, of the Shakespeare period, uh, where texts were not as stable as they became in the meantime. Words have been imprisoned. Uh, in the Gutenberg parenthesis, if one, if one thinks of all the, uh, the ways words have been regimented thanks to this technology, words are regimented into lines of the same length and the same height. Those lines are uh, structured into a block of text. That, that block of text is surrounded by a margin uh, within a page. Uh, those pages are folded and gathered. Then they are stitched together. Then several gatherings are put together in a book and glued together, uh, and that book is bound and then put in covers. It may then be put into a dust jacket, and it may be put into a, a slip case, or in some cases it may be provided with metal clasps uh, to stop the words from getting out, it seems. Uh, an extraordinary level, an extraordinary level of containment. And uh, this is not time, but we do the same thing with letters. Uh, when you write a letter to someone, you write it on the paper, you fold the paper, you put the paper into an envelope, it therefore becomes an enclosure. And you seal the envelope and, and, and send it off. We are, we, are, we are imprisoning words. We're putting words into things. And with regard to printing, how do they get there? Uh, the words get into those containers uh, by something we call the press. And there's a very good reason why it's called a press. It was uh, Gutenberg, Guten, the Gutenbergs didn't make many changes to existing machinery. Uh, the press was previously, that same device was previously used for pressing juice out of olives and grapes uh, and into barrels, into bottles. It's just a question of slightly adapting the technology. Uh, so whereas previously that press was used for, for getting juice out of out of vegetables, out of, out of olives uh, and grapes, into, into barrels. Uh, so now we are using, or the Gutenberg used the press uh, to press the words into, onto the pages, into the book, into the, into the container, into, into volumes which have contents. When we buy one of those books full of words, uh, even we are, if you like, confined within the book because a lot of those books are designed for what's called immersive reading. We ourselves, we ourselves, we immerse ourselves in that text and we are lost in the book. Uh, words get confined in books round about the same time that plays get confined to stages. Performances occur sort of in venues. Uh, music is performed in, uh, concert in, in concert halls, opera houses, in orchestra pits. Music is printed in, behind staves, in staves behind bars, and, and you need the right key uh, to get them out again. The middle and an end. The notion that a piece of music has to, has to last a certain amount of time. Uh, the notion that a picture is one picture. It is a picture of just one thing and doesn't crawl all over a wall and, in, and involve all kinds of sequences of action. Uh, and, that, and that works are complete. The, the notion that a given, a given work uh, isn't a fragment. It has a beginning and end. It doesn't just kind of uh, wander on. It, doesn't, it isn't just stopped arbitrarily as things might have been before. Uh, and, and as things may, may, well, be, may well be after. Uh, pictures were framed 
at roughly the same time that words were enclosed in books. There are changes at the same time in the way we look at the world, the way that people see the world. Bodies are how we see them. We construct, we don't see the word, the world as it is. We perceive the world and we represent and treat the world in terms of preconceived structures, structures and shapes in our minds. Those shapes change. And the changes seem to be correlated to these changes in media technology and, and cultural production. And say, so with regard to the body, the body, the body is how we see it, and how we see it changes. And is that the internet will make us less categorical in the way we perceive the world. It'll make us less panicky, less uh, worried about distinctions between the human and the divine, the human and the machine, the human and the animal, the living and the dead, the black and the white, the male and the female, between writing and speech. It'll make us less aggressive. Time now. What I mean by that, the kind of contained book, is this one. This is, it's a facsimile. This is what they did to Shakespeare. Shakespeare's plays, which were designed for performance, and Shakespeare's plays, which weren't terribly original all the time, Shakespeare's plays, which were, in some cases, rewrites of existing plays, and which deployed traditional materials in traditional ways, and Shakespeare's plays, which were themselves subjected to enormous uh, intervention uh, by the actors, and which were taken around from place to place and performed by the actors, not always very uh, uh, accurately. Those living plays, that living, pre-parenthetical, uncontained uh, culture of highways and junctions, textual highways and junctions and real highways and junctions, it was imprisoned. Uh, well, thank heavens, because otherwise we wouldn't have the plays. But we can just say thank you, thank, thank you, but goodbye uh, to the, uh, the printers. Thomas Petit and Peter Donaldson debated whether the Gutenberg parentheses theory held validity in Shakespeare's time. This idea was brought to my attention by edupunk Amy Berval, who keynoted at BLC in Boston this summer. Amy is the embodiment of a transmedia event. Adam Ant meets Mary Shelley meets Lady Gaga. Here she is, caught in the lobby as we all sat around waiting for trains and planes. Well, I'm a big fan of something called the Gutenberg Parentheses Theory, which basically, it's out of the University of Southern Denmark, um, and very few people know about it, but it's really influenced my teaching. And that is that the period between Gutenberg's printing press and the period of the advent of the internet was really a blip in history. We think it's the norm, but it really was a parenthetical blip. And before that, <clears throat> humans always privileged the oral and the visual. And now, with the internet, we are increasingly privileging the visual. So how do we get students to break away from privileging print and text to really understanding how to leverage um, visual media, such as photography and any kind of image, really? Um, I do a lot of sketching myself. Um, and how to you know, use that as source material for media literacy to really analyze, like, for example, a photograph some photojournalist has put out there. Um, I think I think 
there's a lot to visual literacy. There's a lot to um, knowing how to create images. And one of the big, I guess, I guess the thing I'm most interested in is the metaphor connection. So metaphorical thinking. How can we use an image as a metaphor for a, a larger concept, maybe a more abstract concept? I mean, of course we can depict um, a horse as a horse, but what if you had something more abstract, such as um, liberty? You know, there's been many depictions of liberty, but how would you do it? And is there a universality to that? Could we eventually have some sort of universal image system that we could even use as tags? You know, emojis, a perfect example of that, because a lot of emoji, are they seem to be universal, but there are some cultural differences. And, you know, just understanding how we can increasingly use images in our work one of the things I tell my students is that um, as our attention spans decrease and, uh, you know, and we use a variety of social media, for example, images are very powerful. In fact, I think the latest stat I read was that if you tweet a tweet with attached to an image, it's like 90% more likely to get retweeted. It's just more noticeable. If you've noticed the shift in Facebook... Over the past four years, um, people used to post, you know, text-based status statuses, right? And now, I'd say most of my feed is video and images. It's completely changed. Um, so for me, my personal bent on sketchnoting, I'm I'm using it to process my thinking. So when I read a book or I watch a TED talk, for example, I take notes visually with maybe a soundbite. And there's this thing called dual coding theory, which basically says if you can marry text and image, um, it's more likely to be remembered. Um, sometimes I think leaving out the text is actually more powerful, but that can lead to misinterpretation too. Um, so it's important for students to know the, the, the ups and downs of that, you know, like how specific can I get with an image. But for me, um, my bent on sketchnoting... It's a little bit different than others. Most sketchnoters I know do a wonderful job of capturing, um, kind of synthesizing information, showing relationships with connectors such as arrows and um, hierarchy of image and text. But they usually paint the big picture of the entire, um, say, for example, keynote talk or, um, or book. I like to just grab sound bites. I think I go from a more sound bite kind of stance where I just want more of an impression, like an impressionist artist, I guess. Like, what is my impression of this one concept? I'm going to place one image, one provocative image, and perhaps a phrase or a quote or a term that I kind of gain from whatever I'm listening to or watching to or watching. Um, so talking about, you, you mentioned in a couple of your talks, the mobility of the tools of the impressionist painters and how the tool actually changed what they talked about, how they painted, where they went to paint, the subject matter they painted. And then we look at kind of modern times where even even the, the photograph and the camera, like we're still evolving as far as like how we think about the meaning of a photograph. And all of these tools we have, and I was sketchnoting, you know, throwing back in there, you say we're kind of coming full circle to a more visual way of thinking. How does that change, do you think, our thought and our form of expression. 
Yeah, I do think, like Marshall McLuhan said, the tools shape us as just as we shape the tools. And I think, um, for example, take the camera phone that almost everybody has in their pocket. Just the ubiquity of having a, an easy-to-use uh, device that will take and will capture an image everywhere you go has given people, I think it's called maybe slow journalism in a way. It's given people a more photographic eye and a more attention to detail and a more, um, I guess, critical eye as they wander through the world. Perhaps they have more wonder. I mean, I certainly notice the little things more that I I can capture them and share them. Um, the sharing is a big thing, the sharing of imagery. So the more we're making images and sharing them with our digital tools, um, I think we become better at images. So, for example, with my students, I would give a project where they would just be sent out uh, with their mobile phones to capture footage um, that they would make a movie. And the footage was based on a theme if they so desired, or they could just capture the little things that are normally overlooked. But slowly over the course of three years, I realized I didn't have to give much direction as far as the techniques of photography went, like get bird's eye view or shoot through a frame, such as a chain and a fence. Kids were automatically doing that. Why? I think it's because they're exposed to so many images and they're emulating that. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like this changes this, this constant looking stage that we're all in. How do you think it empowers uh, literacy and the formation of narrative, this going back and forth between text and now a lot of audio and video and using the use of image? Um, this kind of new idea of the new literacies and transmedia, like, how does mm -hmm. it empower the storyteller? Yeah, I really think we as educators need to pay close attention to, to, to teaching not only visual literacy, but like, as you said, transmedia. Um, because digital fluency is different than digital literacy. Digital literacy is knowing how to use a tool and how it works. Digital fluency is knowing what tool to use when and for what purpose. And if you wanted to get a message across, perhaps um, perhaps text is best, perhaps an image is best, perhaps a multimedia component is best. So really understanding you know, what avenues you're going to use, and maybe you leverage all of them, but in different ways. You know, what tool is going to best serve your purpose? Um, and understanding a little bit about human psychology as well and how humans react to images. Uh, so even just getting kids to, one of the things I do is when they read an article and they have to teach it back to the class, they have to share information. So basically this is your typical, you know, PowerPoint presentation, keynote presentation. To really think uh, about simplifying into three images. So instead of a lot of bullet points of text, to use the images to prompt them to be a good speaker, to actually speak what they know. Um, and the images are really just a provocation um, for them to speak, but also for the audience to sort of absorb and think about as they listen to the speaker. So I think we should be done with, you know, reading bullet points of text, but that's, that's a leap because kids have been so used to this print-dominated society that even when they're given a chance to produce something highly visual like a PowerPoint presentation, they seem to be incorporating an overload of text in a way. So I know that you, you speak to this making creativity a habitual thing that you, you have to engage in all the time. Why is it so important for it to be a daily habit? 
Well, one of my favorite quotes from Picasso is that art uh, washes away the dust from the soul, <laughs> the dust of the everyday life from the soul, something to that effect. And I love that because it, it does kind of bring wonder to the world, but that's beautiful. I think, however, that cultivating a habit will make you better at what you do. For example, I practice um, my I practice my drawings every day. I've gotten so much better by scheduling a time. Some people think you shouldn't schedule creativity. I do. I think you should make a specific time in your day to drop everything and draw or drop everything and, you know, play with poetry or something. Um, it just exercises your brain and you get better. Um, as far as like, for example, metaphorical thinking, I created a game um, that would challenge people to, to think metaphorically and practice their drawing every single day in a kind of a low barrier way. Something that's not too difficult, it's engaging, but it really is just exercising your brain in a different way because we're not really used to that. I'm thinking of Project Zero's Making Thinking Visible and how they try to create this culture of thinking with these actual thinking routines. So not just like having a creativity time of the day, but actually training the way you think about things. Is that pushing the mind too far and bracketing things too far? Or do you think part of the creating of a culture of creativity is to actually create the thinking moves around the creativity? Does that make sense? <laughs> so, so for, example, for example, yeah, sorry, it went off. Um, for example, they would have like see, think, wonder, and that's just a, a mm -hmm. way to slow down the mind and get it to mm -hmm. kind of metacognitively pick out you know different ways of thinking about something that you're looking at to focus on like the physical characteristics of it, and then what you think about it, which would be like your interpretive mind, and then going into the wonder stage. Do you think those kind of thinking routines are too much structure on the mind and for to foment creativity, or do you think mm -hmm. that it's good to be in a practice of kind of a looking routine? Yes, I think. I think creativity is not about freedom as much as it is about limitations. And I think the more restraints you have, such as if you're given a certain challenge and some limitations, the more creative you can actually be. If you're given ultimate freedom, it's sometimes impossible. It's too overwhelming to be what we call creative. So I think training the mind, um, having little, like you say, routines or habits. Um, Twyla Tharp has that excellent book, The Creative Habit. Most people who are what we would consider the great creatives of our world have had routines. They have routines of when they work, how they work. For example, maybe a lot of them take a walk and that's when the best thoughts happen. Um, how to pin ideas down so they can connect the dots later, such as having a notebook, um, which could be as Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks just full of visuals as well as text so that you can have a place for all those dots so that you can connect them because that's what creativity is so I think this making thinking visible is one important component and also this heightened sense of wonder having sort of a beginner's eye getting rid of your assumptions um, creative people the most creative people I know see see mundane objects and mundane things and they think differently about them. So going back to this idea of the dots, of constantly having these, um, you know, exposing yourself and throwing more dots out there so you have more things to connect, why is it so important and, and is there a process for curating all of these things? 
I mean, you are actually an amazing curator. If you look at your Google sites, if you look at the stuff you're producing and offering free on the web, like, I think that's part of that curation process. But what else would you tell us about? Yeah. I also like the idea, in, in, I love curating, of course, information and, and ideas, but I think curating people is really important. I think I take a lesson from Picasso and, and surrounding yourself constantly by intriguing creative people because they rub off on you and interesting things happen, which is why things like conferences are wonderful because the, the, the quiet moments outside of a, a designated session are the best. The quiet moments in the cafe talking to somebody and shooting ideas around. Um, there's, a, there's a concept of, um, in a couple huge corporations, I don't know Steve Jobs really loved this, and MIT found that combining people of different disciplines in the, in the same proximity is really important because you see this cross-disciplinary connection. So, for example, if I had a big company and they had completely different um, types of people working there, I might put those people together for sort of water cooler uh, conversation because that's when you get the, the different dots that you see that uh, you can grow the connections. Now, I think as far as, like, the practicality of curating... I think so people which is basically your network of friends um, of creative minds your creative soulmates I sometimes call them um, and then also for me I need some sort of organizational system to pin things down one of my organizational systems is um, a series of notebooks in which I have designated for different purposes to draw so I have a quote one where I illustrate quotes and I have ones for specific things that I'm reading and I put my ideas down uh, there. Um, there's so many digital curation tools, but I think there's so much out there, we have to have a place for it. So whatever works for somebody, it might be Evernote, it might be um, just, you know, even Instagram, taking photos and posting them so that they're archived somewhere is really imperative. And for students, I think having them... Um, find their own system of curation I like things that are shareable so if, if it's an analog thing um, at least take a picture of it and put it somewhere um, you know a blog for you know the way I do my blog is I, I think of ideas and I start blog posts and don't publish them and I kind of work tinker with them and work on them over time so I have a bunch of unfinished blogs but one idea I had actually for a notebook and I think this would be really cool is uh, a book that has sparks, irons in the fire, and um, yeah, just like a space for like creative sparks, like ideas that you're not really have fleshed out yet, but they're there. You know, you might do something with them later. And then irons in the fire is sort of like the things you're working on, um, but maybe you're not finished with them yet. But but maybe you can see some connections. So I might divide my note. I always had the back of my desk had a big um, chalkboard where I put my ideas so I wouldn't forget them. So this idea of curating people and kind of using the idea that, of proximity, physical proximity, like why it's important to have people close to you, but then why it's also important to be sharing with people across vast distances of mm -hmm. space and time as well. Do you see that as like part of it? You know, oh, yeah. Importance of, having both? of course, yes. I mean, we need different perspectives. And that's the, one of the points I made in my keynote was that with the Impressionists, just the opening up of Japan so they could... At, for the very first time, witness a completely different type of composition and art that just completely um, 
amaze them and change the way they thought about what art could be. Like, oh, you can have somebody outside the frame. You don't have to have everything contained in a frame, for example, um, to suggest that the scene goes on. That's an example of global connectedness um, in the 1800s. But now we have the ability to be hyper-connected with people from all over. And I know many of my um, best moments have been waking up and uh, all my friends from the UK are on Twitter and they're tweeting about wonderful things and I'm just learning from them so much. And I'm so glad that the world has um, kind of shrunk in that way, you know, um, that we can gather these different perspectives and we're not in our little bubble. But it's important, you know, to break your bubble because if you're just with people that think the same way you do, um, and this is why people love to travel, right? Because you see different different perspectives on life, different ways of living. And then, and actually, that's one of the best things about creativity is just go traveling. <laughs> just go somewhere completely different than you are normally from, and you will learn so much um, and archive your experience. So you talked about this idea of radical collaboration, of it having, it's really important in a creative process to, or at least in a, the brainstorming se um, sessions of creative process, to have people of really divergent views, maybe of different professions or different disciplines within the school. How do you, I mean, have you ever addressed that like within the school? So as you're generating ideas, the importance of pulling people from different areas of the school. Because I know a lot of times those can become kind of silo kind of thinking, right. like the math people only talk to the math people and you know, the third grade teachers only talk to the third grade teachers. Um, yeah. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, you can force it through PD. We've had, I, I would, you know, always encourage, um, for example, what if you put down all the disciplines on cards and then you picked up two random ones and like math and PE and you could see what could we do that's integrated? What could we do that involves both math and PE? And so there's a little bit of a game. Another one would be something a little more, um, collegial, which would be, and I tried this at a PD once where we had our normal day of professional development, but at the end of the day, everybody signed up to do something fun. I signed up for the art room and I was in the art room making art with the kindergarten teacher, the math teacher, you know, I was, the, I was a history teacher at the time. And it was interesting because we were working together creatively, but we're talking about our own disciplines and our own children, you know, we're completely different. And just having and bouncing ideas off each other in a more um, social way, in a more informal way. So I think there's informal and both both formal and informal opportunities there. But I know a lot of schools are working towards more integrated curriculum. And I, I did mention this in the keynote about um, Michelangelo being, you know, a true Renaissance man and dabbling in, you know, everything from sculpture to painting to poetry to architecture. I think this view of the disciplines dancing together is really important that that's when kids learn the best is when they see the connections. So how are we going to help them see the connections between things? Yeah, it's like a lot of our greatest contributors to education have not been educators. They have been these kind of polyglot types that like, you know, have been trained across different disciplines and had to think back and forth across those disciplines. Um, so someone wants to get to see your work and where you can connect, what would be the first point you would point them to and then the second and then the third? Because <laughs> I know you're, you're out there in a lot of places. 
Uh, I, I'm really active on Twitter and I post a lot of my sketches. Uh, and that's where I do most of my thinking because I feel like that's the, the forum where I can interact with the most people. So I'm just Amy Burval everywhere. Uh, I have a very, I'm actually the only Amy Burval in the world because <laughs> it's a very unique name. <laughs> so, um, so it's easy to find me. So Twitter, I do have a website that, um, that will link to all my tumblers. I have several tumblers where I put specific types of sketches, such as my metaphorical icons or quotes. Um, and then, um, of course, you can cut it there. I don't know. What I have my website. I have Twitter. Google, I, I saw your oh, website. my Google Plus. Oh, yeah. My, okay, is that something new or is that something... Uh, no, I should put that. Um, so I curate using Google Plus communities, and all of my communities are open communities. That means anyone can join them. So when I do a workshop, not only do I have all the resources there that I've been curating for years, but now the people involved in the workshop can also be contributors. So I'm crowdsourcing from the collective mind. And I think um, if you just look me up at G+, you'll find a community on new literacies, one on visual literacy, one on uh, creative cinema, all kinds of things. Cool. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Uh, All right, here we go. Um, I'm going to do start with the just the beginning because it's very different. G is for the Gutenberg parentheses. It gives us perspective. Now privileged prince is purely elective. edu folk punk Frank Reichland in Seattle putting Amy Burval's poetry to music. This podcast scratched the surface of the transmedia shift happening all around us. I'm sure we'll come back to this theme, but an upcoming podcast will discuss gamification and designing for active learning spaces. Journeys in Podcasting is produced by Natalia Leon, Diego Lopez, and myself, Chris Davis. We'll close now with a first draft poem by Lorenza, a fifth grade student after a trip to Bogota's Candelaria for a graffiti tour from Christian Peterson. If you are in Bogota and want to experience how graffiti creates a transmedia urban museum, look up Bogota Graffiti Tours. Lorenza unlocked this poem using two thinking moves from Project Zero, See, Think, Wonder, and Circle of Viewpoints. But that's another podcast and the planning on creating cultures and thinking. Now, here's Lorenza. 
Two eyes staring at the world, surrounded by blocks of colors. I could mean many things. I can express different feelings. Which creature am I? No one knows, and no one cares. Standing all alone in the deep darkness of the night, with no one to hold on. I want some friends. I want some company. As people go by, staring at me, I try to give them the message: Help me! I want some company. No more solitary days. That's my wish. As the days and hours pass by, I stand still, just staring. I want entertainment. I want it now. Thoughts rumble, dance, mix in my mind like tiny bubble gums in a bag. Do I really make a difference here? A voice whispers, "You do. You were painted here to make a difference." My heart pumps with happiness. Then, after a while, I remember I'm just a graffiti painted on the wall.